Well, great to be uh, back with you. Uh, Brad invites me to preach, maybe teach uh, a couple times a year. Always enjoy being here. I like like you as as people. And uh, I don't know what it is. I, I'm assuming you feel this too. Just kind of the vibe of this space is really, really nice. So I hope you appreciate uh, appreciate being here. My assignment from Brad was to continue in uh, your fall teaching series on the one another's. Now, I'm just assuming when I say that, you're all thinking, yep, that's what we've been doing, the the false... Okay, good. Um, And today the focus is on being of of one mind, being kind of synced up uh, in agreement with one another. And I'm really excited for the passage that I'll be reading in just a minute, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I believe I've mentioned before that uh, I became a Christian in college, and uh, as a college student, I was in a, at a Bible study uh, in a particular church, and the, the pastor was leading the study, and he made an interesting comment that, that's always stuck with me. He said, all Scripture is inspired but not all scripture is inspiring. And what he meant was there are huge swaths of the Bible that, yes, we receive as God's inspired word, uh, absolutely, but they take some work to get through. If you've ever tried to just read through the whole Bible, you know what I'm talking about. In the topography of the Bible, there are long stretches that are, you know, like I-5 from Portland to Eugene. I mean, it's just, you know, you just have to hang in there and and keep going. Inspired, but a a little bit boring, to just be totally honest. But regularly, and we're, we're thankful for this, we, we come around a corner regularly in Scripture. We come around a corner, so to speak, And there's Mount Rainier on just an absolutely clear day. And it just takes our breath away. And there are portions of Scripture that fall into that category. They are inspired, like all of Scripture, and inspiring. Just some quick examples. I was reading through, I, as a personal discipline, read through the whole Bible Uh, using this particular plan each year. And I was recently in the prophet Isaiah. And there's some cool spots in Isaiah in the first, like, 39 chapters. There's also a lot of material you're just, you know, you're just kind of getting through. And then you come to Isaiah chapter 40. And this, literally, when I read this, it just kind of took my breath away. Have you not known... Have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power, in fact, to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. 
They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's a Mount Rainier passage right there. Uh, One more quick one. The whole of chapter 8 of Romans is kind of Mount Rainier-ish in my opinion. But this is a much shorter snippet I'm sharing with you. Paul writes in chapter 8, So what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What can separate us from the love of Christ? And the clearly implied answer is nothing. Shorter passage, but kind of that, whew, man, that is good news to hear. And I'm kind of getting a running start here on our Philippians uh, chapter 2, 1 through 11 passage. It's one of these Mount Rainiers, I believe. I'm going to read it now. You can judge for yourself. But I think it's an absolutely awesome text. And uh, I'm positive, in fact, you'll agree with me. So here we go. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's join our hearts in prayer. Uh, Gracious God, thank you so much uh, for your inspired, and this morning with this passage, inspiring word. We pray that you bless it to our understanding, seal it in our hearts and in our minds today through your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to do uh, three things this morning. I want to give just a brief overview of this Philippians passage, kind of take a minute and look at its structure. Then I, secondly, I want to look uh, more closely at the theme, the one another theme of being of the same mind with one, being of one mind with one, one another. What does that mean? And then three, offer some practical advice on uh, seeking unity 
and dealing with disunity or disagreement in the church, and on my sort of practical advice level, uh, you, of course, are free to tweak, modify, add to, subtract, whatever, uh, whatever seems wise to you. But first, uh, first point, a brief overview of the passage. It, it breaks really naturally into two parts, and maybe you kind of heard that as I read. Uh, verses 1 through 5 describe the, the life, the character, the attitude that the Apostle Paul wants to see in the church, see in us, in effect. He writes, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. So he's talking to us. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And there's kind of this imperative quality in this first section. There's a call in the text. Make my joy complete. And be this way. And do this. And have uh, this mindset. A key idea in there, it's mentioned explicitly, is the notion of humility. Paul says, in humility, count others better than yourself or more significant than yourself. And I like this because it's really the theme of humility that connects the first section with the second section. Namely, the humility we see in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul starts with us, but he takes us to Jesus. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then verses 6 and following, this just incredible kind of creedal statement. Christ, equal with God, God in status, lets go of it, doesn't hold on to it, lets go, comes to earth as a human, not just any human, but a servant human, and then not just any servant human, but a servant human who gives his life literally for others. And this is, I, I call this the indicative uh, dynamic of the gospel. It's not a call to us, you know, do this. The second part is in the indicative. It's just stating this is what God has done. This isn't what you do. This is what God has done through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So in this structural overview, Paul starts in Philippians 2 by talking about our character, the church's character, but he takes us to the wellspring, to the template for all Christian character, namely the character of Jesus himself. We could put it this way. If you think of the stuff we do as ethics, and I believe in, I was here once and I said, let's imagine a whiteboard. Did I do, I think I did that. Back to our imaginary whiteboard, we could make a box and put ethics in it. And that's what we do, what we're called to do. But that ethical call rests on something, so we draw a box, a bigger box underneath ethics, and we'd put theology we would put what God has done. What we are called to do rests on the foundation, the template, the example of what God has done for us in, in Christ. Now, Brad pays me 
and Brad, if you're listening, I don't know if he listens when he's away, but um, he pays me huge bucks to come here and uh, <laughs> teach. So I'm going to keep talking for a while, preach, preach and teach some more. Uh, but if you need one takeaway from today's message, I'm going to give it to you now in this point I'm making. You know, if somebody says later this afternoon, hey, uh, what was the message about at church day? I'm giving you the answer. This is, this is what you say. When thinking about our life, the kind of person we should be, all roads lead to Jesus. When we're thinking about our calling, our character, how we should be in this world, all roads lead to Jesus. Ours is a Christ-centered faith. The imperatives of discipleship rest on the indicative of what God has done and already accomplished through Jesus Christ. We love because he first loved us. We serve. Why? Because he's first served us. As Paul says in our passage, the name that is above every name is the name of Jesus. And at the end of history, when the new heaven and new earth are ushered in, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, I'm about to focus on our character and how we are to be with one another for the remainder of my message, but we'll do that from a place that is just the very best place for a human being to find him or herself, and that place is at the feet of Jesus Christ. That's where we gain understanding of ourselves. So that's my uh, overview uh, of Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Who we're called to be is based on who Jesus was and is. Second point, emphasizing this for those of you who like clear outlines and structure. So we're on point two now. I want to drill down on this whole notion of being of the same mind of being in agreement with one another. The first part of the Philippians, uh, the Philippians passage, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of the, the same mind. And let me take us immediately uh, to the statement that I believe functions as kind of a, and my wife Candy Easley is here, the executive pastor of uh, Bethany, so I'm going to quiz her on this. Uh, I believe this functions as a kind of motto of Bethany Community Church, though it's a quote from St. Augustine. Just between us, my wife didn't know this quote, Kendi, my wife, did not come, she did not know it came from St. Augustine. But here's what I've heard. I believe it's on a plaque at the Green Lake campus. I've heard Richard Dahlstrom say it, and I've heard others say it. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Have you heard that before? Because it's your motto 
according to the plaque over at Green Lake. Um, and I, I believe that Paul's call to us in Philippians 2 takes us to that first point in essentials, unity. With the stuff that's of central importance to our faith, we should strive for unity, or in Paul's language, be of the same mind. <clears throat> now, track with me here. Paul's not saying to the church, agree about everything. That wouldn't be a church. That would be a cult. Okay? No, there's a whole bunch of stuff that allows for difference of opinion. But Paul is saying at the core values, at the gospel center, seek unity. Seek to be of one mind. To, to make this same point a different way, let me, let me bless you with a wonderful Greek word. Uh, you can share this later uh, with your friend who asks you about church. Uh, this word meant a whole bunch to the Protestant reformers. The word is adiaphora. kind of rolls off the tongue. Adiaphora. And adiaphora is the Greek word for indifference. Indifference. And the reformers believe that in Christian theology, certain doctrines and matters... Were matter, uh, practices were matters of indifference because they are neither commanded nor forbidden by the Bible. Let me say that again. I think it's super important in this, in this day and age. If it's not commanded clearly from Scripture nor for, forbidden by Scripture, we have the freedom to be indifferent. In fact, one of the reformers' favorite sayings was, as Christians, we enjoy the freedom to be indifferent about indifferent things. We can be indifferent about secondary indifferent things. So, when Paul is calling Christians to be of the same mind, he's talking about gospel essentials, in essentials, Unity. He's not talking about, and I'm going to hearken back to my 20 years as a pastor out in Sammamish. This was in uh, the 90s and the aughts. When I first, Kenny and I first went to Sammamish, it wasn't Sammamish. It was unincorporated King County. So started this, was in on the ground floor of a little church and we you know, we grew over the years. But I thought, what, what were the things we used to fight and argue about that were actually indifferent things? Totally indifferent. Here's some. And if you're roughly my age, <laughs> uh, Candy, so that would be you. <laughs> you know, you could supply your, your own thing, things, or you might remember some of mine. But we would argue about should we have a worship band with drums or an organ with a choir? We, we would fight about that. Uh, should the pastor be in a robe or wear, wear normal person clothes? We would fight about that. Should we have one service or multiple services? We would fight about that. Here was one of my favorite memories. 
Should we serve regular lousy church coffee in styrofoam cups? Or should we spend the money to re get really good coffee? Because it's a coffee culture in the Pacific Northwest. We fought about that. Um, these are non-essentials. I mean, I picked funny ones, so it'd be very, very clear. But these are absolutely non-essentials to be dealt with, with, according to the motto, with liberty and with love. These aren't deal breakers at all. But on the essentials of the gospel, the church is to strive for unity of mind. Again, the Bethany Augustine statement. So this, I think, really narrows the field in terms of what we have to reach agreement on. We don't have to have unity on every possible matter. Cheap coffee, great coffee. No, that's adiaphora. Who, you know, who cares? Pick one. You want to be in charge of the coffee? You can pick. Um, just the stuff that's of gospel importance. Just the core teaching of the gospel. The essentials. Now, I know you're a smart bunch, so right about now, you're thinking, well, Tyler, who decides what the essentials are, right? If just the essentials we have to reach unity on, the obvious next question is, well, what are those, what is essential? Um, what are the essentials? And let me, let me offer a couple thoughts here. And I, to be honest, I kind of like my thoughts on, these, on this point. I think, you, I think you'll find this helpful. First, first point on what is essential. An essential is something that shows up repeatedly and seems to carry much weight in the New Testament. An essential shows up again and again and seems to be weighty. And here, here's a, the thought I, experiment I did. We, we go on a month-long retreat. We do nothing there but read through our New Testaments good food and recreation time, but together we just read through the New Testament. It takes about 18 hours to read through the New Testament. We set aside our agendas, our narratives, our presuppositions, lawyer-like, reading a document. We read through the New Testament again and again and again, and then we gather like this. We've all read through a bunch of times. We have our imaginary whiteboard. And we say, what stood out? Having read through the New Testament five or ten times, what stood out to you? What seemed to be important in the early church? And let's put those things on our whiteboard. And I believe it would include things like this. So I'm doing what we would have done on our pretend retreat. Uh, I think there would be unanimity around the fact that Jesus, the early Christians believed, Jesus embodied, made visible, the invisible God. That Jesus is God in the flesh. I think everybody would agree, would say, yep, I, that's what I saw. Uh, that his death on the cross was of central importance in the gospel story. So cross, 
that relationship with God is offered as a gift, this is the grace factor, as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. That the same spirit who empowered Jesus empowers the church and Christians today. And that, though mysterious, Jesus will one day return and be seen by all. A little bit hazy of the details, but you clearly get an impression that the dude's coming back. I think, and you could, there would be others. I'll just posit that. I think we would find unity and agreement on those essentials. I think if we read through the New Testament, we would all say that's the important stuff. Setting aside our personal agenda, that the words of the New Testament seem to indicate that that's the stuff that we need to be unified around. You know what you would, that wouldn't show up on our imaginary whiteboard? If we're being really honest in our New Testament read-through, this would not show up. That any of us could be baptized on behalf of a dead person. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Baptism, Paul references baptism on behalf of the dead. What's he talking about? I have no idea. I have no idea. It's in scripture. It's said once. Would it make our list of big stuff we need to agree on? No. Should infants be baptized or not be baptized? Infant baptism. You could argue scripturally both ways. Good Christians disagree. Is it an essential, your view of age and baptism? Nope. Uh, Here's one. This may stir some things up. That the husband is the head of the wife... And therefore, marriage and family is hierarchical. It's how it should be. <laughs> See, I knew. I don't think that would be on our list. I don't. And you might say, well, it would be on my list. I don't think it would make the list. Based on, is it found everywhere in the New Testament, and does it seem weighty? Does Paul make mention of it? Yes. Is it an, an essential? No, in my opinion. I don't think it'd be on any of our lists. Um, here's another one. That the only basis for the forgiveness of my sin is the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Yeah, that would be one of the yeses. That would. See, you could feel it. We could have a long list of that stuff that's found in the New Testament and that we'd all say, no, that, you know, that's a one-off, or I don't know what he meant, or, but it's not an essential. Then I read that last one, and I'm, I, I just know we felt, oh, yeah, <laughs> you're tricking us. That should have been on the first list, because that's everywhere. Um, I have some more, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, let those go. So... Um, 
this call to unity and being of the same mind, first, mind, first test, is it a main theme of the New Testament? That's where we find unity. The big stuff in the New Testament. Second test. <clears throat> and this may be kind of foreign ground for some. I, I don't know of all of your church backgrounds. But do we find it in the creeds and the confessions of the broader church? Christianity has been around about 2,000 years. It's faced a lot of challenges. And it's tried to live out the faith in all different cultural contexts. We use the word diversity today a lot. The ancient world was incredibly diverse. Read Acts chapter 2 and the list of people from all different countries, exceedingly diverse. And the church over church history has had to noodle through what the essentials are in communicating the faith. And often, if their conclusions were embraced by enough believers in enough different settings, they would sort of shape into what we call a creed or a confession. And we're blessed with a bunch of these documents from over the centuries, not on the same level as Scripture. They're not Scripture, but they're to be, uh, they're venerable. They're to be honored as wisdom from our uh, parents in the faith. And we have some really old ones, Nicene Creed, Apostles' Creed. <coughs> Again, some churches read these frequently, and maybe you grew up in a church that did that. Uh, that's early church creeds, Nicene, Apostles. Reform the Reformation brought about a bunch of creeds and confessions. Westminster Confession, very influential in this country uh, through my own background. Uh, I'm a Presbyterian by kind of training, and Westminster Confession was, was, was huge. Uh, during, the, during the World War II era, pre uh, the 1930s in Germany, German Christians rose up against the ide ideology of Nazism and created what's called the Barman Declaration. And they said, no, no, we do not. Sieg Heil means hail victory. And they said the victory we hail is the victory of Jesus Christ. And we're not going to say Zieg Heil to any human being. And so they challenged that uh, Nazi ideology and shaped it into, it's called the Barman Declaration. And it's of, I think, of great value. So we have these treasures that can guide us. What are, again, what are the essentials? How do we figure that out? Through the New Testament. And do we find it in the creeds and confessions of the church? We have these treasures of creeds and confessions. And certainly, they are in, uh, they're in earthen vessels, to, to borrow a phrase of Paul's. They're human documents. But they are wisdom from our fathers and mothers in the faith. And then lastly, and I'll, I'll try to uh, <clears throat> zoom through this. Uh, so third main point. Uh, how do we then, but how do we deal with difference? You know, we can get, we can get a bead on unity. Okay, it's the essentials. 
You know, we get the important stuff and we center. But then there is disunity. There's difference of opinion. Um, there, those occasions where we're not of the same mind. In the church, I'm, you know, that's our focus here. And I would go back to the, the motto, the Augustine slash BCC motto. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty or freedom would be the modern word. In all things, charity. Modern translation, love. In all things, love. When we do disagree on non-essentials, how we disagree as brothers and sisters in Christ is super important. We, we can disagree, but how do we treat each other as we're dis- disagreeing? And I think the liberty, the freedom and love uh, statements are, are powerful. <clears throat> you may have noticed that we live in a highly vol- volatile and polarized day and age. I haven't read a book on this, but I think social media, it's just old guy opinion, I think social media throws gasoline on human differences. I, I, I really do. Uh, we're tribal. We're hostile to difference. We're socially fraught. I read a, a study recently. It was right around 60% of college students are afraid to ever speak in class. Because if they ex- express an opinion that might not be the correct opinion... Uh, it might mean their social destruction. So they just don't speak. Which I think is really sad because I think college is the time to kick around ideas and, and argue in a good way with one another. Uh, I highly recommend a book by a fellow named Matt Taibbi. It's called Hate, Inc. H-A-T-E, comma, like incorporated, I-N-C, hate, Inc. And Taibbi argues that the business model, and this is over the last 20, 25 years, the business model for all media, the major networks, social media, all media, is now to gin up rage among its base. That's where the money is. So the New York Times wants progressives steaming mad at fill in the blank. Fox News wants conservatives' heads exploding with anger over fill in the blank. Because they learn that rage, anger, like an, oh, just a, if I can say this in church, a pissed off base means more eyeballs. And more eyeballs or ears means more money. So the business model, it's a scary thought, the business model of media is to make you angry. As followers of Jesus, we need to critique that and be mindful of that. I'm really mad about something. Whoa, 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 wait a second. 
why am I really mad about that? Did somebody do something to me? Well, no. But I read this tweet, like, bring the temperature down. Where, where is that coming from? So the culture today, and I'm, I'm sort of getting at how we as Christians, how the church deals with just difference, be mindful of the fact that the culture today is just, do we follow it, this rage, 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 or do we follow Jesus? And remember this, my last sentence. In heaven, there won't be arguments. There will be people. And you're sitting with one another now. Okay, let's uh, join our hearts in prayer. Lord, uh, through your spirit, please give us all wisdom on this matter of uh, seeking unity in the essentials, and then help us when we have differences uh, to express love and latitude with those around us. We, we ask for wisdom on this point. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.